Good morning, church. The scripture for today um, is, will be on the, in the book of uh, Ezekiel, chapter 3, verses 16 through 27. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have, made you, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not uh, warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for the blood, their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die from their sin, for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely leave because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. The hand of the Lord was on me there. He said to me, get up and go, go out to the plain. And there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory I had seen by the Kabard River, and I fell face down. Then uh, the Spirit came into me and raised me, raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go, shut yourself inside your house, and you, son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious people. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let them listen, and whoever will refuse, let them refuse, for they are a rebellious people. Thanks, Augustina. <clears throat> all right, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. Um, if you didn't get an email this week from the church, then it'd be great if you got a hub profile and put your email address in it so that you could get these, because they'll tell you what's going on, right? But I want to just highlight a couple things from that in case you are not getting the church's emails. Um, starting June 6th, we will no longer have a designated capacity limit for our worship services, okay? Yeah. I'm really happy, too, but there's some people that are so sensitive. I, I even, I feel like cheering is like spiking the football on them, and so I'm a little sensitive about it. But it's cool if you cheer, but that, if you're wondering why I'm not like cheering, it's, man, everybody feels so differently, and I just, I'm trying to love you all, and it's, you're a complicated family, okay? Um, <laughs> that means you're no longer required to sign up online. It also means that we're not going to have uh, service in the gym because we've got lots of room. Um, 
also, if you still would prefer to um, have social distancing, um, the two sides in the mez, and then this section over here, the back third of it, is going to still be social distance so that you—our goal is so that people who are still very concerned for certain reasons that we might not understand, they might be particularly immunocompromised, they still can get in and get out if they feel like they need to, okay? Um, and uh, also, remember, you don't have to wear a mask, okay? You don't have to wear a mask. Please don't be mean to or make fun of anybody who does, okay? I, I'm especially talking to you young people, all right? Um, and uh, yes, everybody made you wear a mask, and it feels like good turnabout is now to make fun of them or tell them they can't, okay? Like, I get, I get that feeling. It is, it's probably coming from the flesh, though, not the spirit, and we should hold that back and just be like, if you want to wear a mask, God bless you. And then, then assume that people wearing masks don't want to be hugged spontaneously or handshaken, and people who don't probably want to be kissed, okay? All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, we will still be streaming the 9 a.m. service. And we, we haven't made certain decisions about whether or not we're still doing AMA or, or how, what changes we might be making or how the two services might be different, the one that's streamed and the one that's not. These are more long-term decisions about how to utilize technology and how technology can be used in the discipleship process that we haven't totally come down on yet. Does that make sense? Um, and then lastly, within the children's ministry, right now, um, our children's ministers, I think, are still going to be wearing masks and um, kids can, or not based on parental decision, um, we're going to keep reevaluating that because the science is all over the place, and so is the advice from the medical professionals at our church that we um, asked for advice from. So uh, we're still sorting out exactly what to do in children's ministry. We didn't want to act too abruptly, but we'll let you know when something changes there. Okay? Great. And uh, hopefully we'll have a party in not too long. Okay. Um, as I looked at this passage this morning, I, man, I would love to preach on this one two hours. I thought that— um, Going through Ezekiel, I'd want to just keep moving because most pastors only preach like three or four sermons out of Ezekiel because there's only three or four like super fun passages. And gosh, I feel like I'm skipping over everything. I feel like I could preach for two or three hours and, and not repeat myself this morning. It, it's just—so I really want to encourage you that if you haven't downloaded or gotten the devotional to get it and be reading it and studying it yourself because there's just so much uh, in this book that it, it doesn't seem like it because it's a, it's a prophet and like it's probably the hardest kind of literature in the Bible to interpret well for the present. Um, but man, if you really learn how to do this, then the enrichment of your reading of Scripture all through the Bible will be really incredible. Okay. All right. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I think is probably relatively true of our culture and the time in which we live is that we live in what you might call a Karen moment, right? Um, the Christian version of this is Jesus jukes. If you know about that, I think that phrase is a little bit older, though. And um, there's some confusion even on the internet among people writing articles telling us what Karens are, what Karens are, right? So um, the, the, the phrase is a pejorative usually used of middle-aged white women, but it can be thrown at anybody, turns out. Um, if you're like butting into what you shouldn't and telling people what to do and kind of being snotty with folks or like being upset that you're not getting your way, right? <clears throat> the connotation though, I think most systematically that we should recognize relative to Karen is that she acts like she's acting in the best interest of everyone, but she's really just curmudgeonly wanting things her way, and she can only see things her way, and she wants everybody to respect her values and not have any others, right? And everybody hates people like this, okay? Like, naturally. Like, you might not, like, outwardly hate them, but they bother the heck out of you, and you want to do the opposite of what they say, right? Like, I remember um, that one of the ladies that got called Karen was there was, this, there was this white lady in Central Park, and there was this African-American guy who I think was walking his dog, and his dog wasn't on a leash, and she was, like, telling him how bad a person he was. And he, like, didn't—he was just like, listen, lady, like, I don't know what to tell you. And he, like, didn't immediately put his dog on a leash like he was supposed to, right? And, I, and like, I was like, that's what I would have done, and, and I probably shouldn't have. But the, the first thing I want to do when somebody talks to me like that is do the opposite, right? Or just be like, why don't you try to make me? Which is exactly how my teenagers treat me sometimes, <laughs> right? 
Now, there's a couple issues with this. One is we don't want to be that person, right? We read a, a passage in the Bible in which God is telling a human person who belongs to him that that person is going to be a watchman over other people, right? How do you do that? How are we supposed to do that? What does that mean, right? And um, we don't want to be caring. The, sec the second thing is, is we hate people like that. And so it's what happens if you actually think that God is like that, right? If you think that God is a caring, right? Telling you what to do. He only has his own values. They're arbitrary. He just like, you know, he just wants every chocolate ice cream because that's what he likes. And, and like, he's, he's always just pressing that in on you. And like, you have to be just like him. And do just what he wants. And we won't give you your right and proper liberties and, and so forth, right? Is God like that, right? I think those are pretty important questions and very easily misunderstood in a time where everybody takes it upon themselves to correct everyone, right? While knowledge is exploding and everybody is exponentially more ignorant than we've ever been about the things that we're aware of but know nothing about, that we think that we have enough information to make, like, firm declarations on, which are really just responses to things people told us, and we're just passing on the authority of others that we can't even verify ourselves. And so, it's kind of a tenuous thing. We, need, we better get this straight, right? What the difference between being a Karen and being a watchman is. And part of the reason is because um, being a watchman is a really noble thing. And if you mistake yourself for a watchman when you're really being a Karen, you'll think that you're like this great, morally upright, like noble, honorable person doing the right thing in the face of whatever adversaries. And really you're being a self-interested, self-centered person that's like just poking your eye in other people's faces because they won't do things just the way you want them done. Right? This is a really important idea. So let's start with what this passage says. Okay, what this passage says is that if you're a watchman, the most fundamental thing about a watchman is, besides that they're supposed to watch, is that they have to give the warning. Right? There's only two things a watchman does. A watchman watches, and when they see the danger coming, they give warning, right? The main tool of a watchman well, in, in ancient Israel was a shofar, a horn, right? Because when, when you saw it, you, didn't, you weren't supposed to pull out your Uzi. Like, you didn't, you didn't pull out a gun and go fight the enemy. You blew the horn so everybody knew there was an enemy coming. That was your only responsibility, right? Now, the reason why that's the case is because you have to believe, if you're a watchman, that a warning can change everything. It doesn't always change everything. In fact, according to the book, book of Ezekiel, at least for Ezekiel, um, God was like, look, hardly anybody's going to listen to you, right? In fact, these people are so stubborn, so hard-hearted, so obstinate that it's reasonably likely that no one is going to listen to you. But you see, that's the thing. If you're a watchman and you see the enemy coming and you're supposed to blow the horn and you think to yourself, well, nobody's going to listen. It doesn't matter. Your job is to blow the horn. Doesn't matter if you do it great. It doesn't matter if you persuade them. Doesn't matter if they listen. What matters is, is that you blew the horn. Everything else is up to them. The enemy decided to come. You didn't decide for the enemy to come. And they heard the horn and they decided whether or not to listen. That's on them. Attacking's on them. What's on you is whether or not you blew the horn. And you have to believe that blowing the horn can matter. Right? Now, there's a couple things I want to say about this. Three, because that's what human beings can remember. It's three things, right? There's like a hundred things in this passage. Let's just do three. Okay. Um, see, everybody thinks like, you know, pastors could just say two things. Why do they always have to say three things? Besides that, that's what human beings can take in a single sitting. It's also that we want to say like 670 things, so we just stop at three, you know? 
Um, so first is, a warning can make a difference. Rarely. Right? Secondly, warnings are an absolute responsibility. And third, warnings are delivered, not defended. Okay? So let's go through these and then talk about how Jesus is the truer and perfect son of man watchman. Right? So the first is warnings can make a difference rarely. It's, imp- it's important to recognize that um, God does not tell Ezekiel that he's going to tell people to do stuff and they're going to do it. He does not tell them he's going to warn people and they're going to listen. We get so self-involved with this. When we do our duty and then people don't respond to it, we get so upset at them or, or like so discouraged ourselves. You know why that is? It's because we have no philosophy, morality, or theology of duty. We're such materialists that all we care about is what happens, what happens to us or what other people do. We, we don't have a deep moral connection to what we are supposed to do, and that it is an inherent good just for us to do what we are supposed to do. I'd really encourage you, in order to teach this to your children or to yourself if you're an adult, the book The Wise Woman by Gordon MacDonald is, is fabulous on this, on the distinction between doing one's duty its relationship to the formation of personhood and to personal beauty. Um, most warnings are not listened to, okay? We are self-involved creatures. We're incredibly obstinate. There's very little difference, if any difference, between us and the ancient Israelites, okay? We want to do things the way we want to do things. We assume the way we look at the world is perfect. We think everybody else is wrong and we're right. Anytime there's a conflict, we think we've been wronged and injustice has, you know, like been all over us and other people have gotten their way and their privileges and like everything's bad and like, and then people tell us that we're wrong and we're like, no, we're not. I'm not wrong. You're wrong, stupid wrongness person, you know? And that's, that's natural human behavior, Right? It's universally human. It's not, it's not rooted in a nationality or an education level or an ethnicity or an income. It's just human. We don't listen. We don't listen to warnings. That's partly because there's so many Karens. Like, what would happen in your life if you listened to all the people warning you who had a microphone? Which is why most people need to shut up, which we'll get to. If it is not your charge and your stewardship to speak into something, you should keep your mouth shut because you don't know what you're talking about. That's why all this awareness advocacy is a double-edged sword. On one level, it's kind of like, hey, this thing's important. Let me tweet about it. You don't know anything about it. Why are you—let the person who knows something about it say something about it. You want to retweet them? Fine. Right? But like all this, like, well, I know, and you don't know, and let me defend this. Like, you don't know. And it's not— your job to talk about it. We think it's our job to talk about everything. Like half of television is like, bring somebody on who doesn't know anything about this, who got briefed by some like 20-year-old intern who did some Google searches so that you can make a couple of talking points when you have no understanding of the complex relationship of these things to each other so that all of the American public and world can be misinformed and act stupidly and hate each other at the same time because somebody else watched the other channel. Right? Part of warning is just telling the warning to the person who needs it when it is your responsibility and stewardship to do so. Okay? So one way to think about this is, this is what God says. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for a sin, but I will hold you accountable for his blood. So now listen, this passage is mostly about the watchman. But the reason why the watchman actually can endeavor to do the warning, other than, than 
point two, it's an absolute responsibility, is because there is some hope. The point of being the watchman or the point of warning is because of this. It says, what's the point of it? It's to dissuade him from his evil. Right? To invite him out of it. And what's the goal? Right? Dissuade from his evil in order to. You see that, that conge- connection? The whole purpose of the dissuading is in order to save his life. What that means is his life can be saved. Now listen, listen, don't take that cheaply because you're like, well, of course, it's religion. No, stop. Like, we're talking about a wicked man, like somebody that you can describe in long-form argument that is a bad person. Okay? We always think we're better than we are. Right? God's talking about wickedness, like on multiple levels. Right? Somebody who's not good in lots of ways, who really deserves to die. Like God's saying, look, I'm going to kill him. Like you tell him, I'm going to kill him. And that's the warning. See if you can get his attention before he dies. Tell him I'm going to kill him. And maybe that'll get his attention. Right? Because he thinks giving up on his wickedness is a fate worse than death. You tell him he's going to die and see if that's true. Right? And what that means is that implicit in the you're going to die is that if you turn around, you're going to live. Right? Now, it's important to recognize what that means. Right? And what it means is that God saves by identity, not by history. So in, in evangelical churches or Bible-believing churches, whatever, however you want to say it, um, you hear people say a lot, um, we're saved by faith and not by works. We're saved by faith and not by works. And non-Christians often hate this because what it sounds like we're saying to them, because they don't know any different, and oftentimes we don't know any different, is that if you are a terrible person who hurts other people and just like, just lives in such a way as you, you care nothing about others, and they're really hurt, and you're always a self-important one. And then you hear, they're like, you could go to hell, like if, like if God judges you, and you're like, well, if I believe, and if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. And like, as like an addendum to all your other self-interested actions, you go, well, I want to go to heaven. That sounds great. And so you just believe, I believe in Jesus, right? And so like, you just, just keep on with the, you know, like, who cares? Like, you're just adding it on there, because God saves by faith, not by works, right? And so you don't, Nothing else has to change. You're going to have— Isn't that great? So now you can live a perfectly selfish life and have a perfectly selfish eternity. Isn't that fantastic? Right? And it's no wonder that a non-Christian would hear that and go, that's the ugliest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right? And it's partly because we don't read the Bible in context to see what God calls faith, what faith means to him. Right? Faith means a belief— that transforms and constrains you. That's why in the Bible, you're saved by faith and not by works, and faith always produces works. And that's not a contradiction. Because faith is by definition constraining and identifying belief. Or it's not faith. It's not real. It's fake. James says, right, if you have Faith, and it doesn't produce any works. Can such a faith save a man? James says, and the answer is, of course not. Of course not. You could read Romans 10, 9 all day long. If you believe Jesus is Lord, and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can confess that all day long. The book of James is still in the Bible, and it's just as much the word of God written and displayed as Romans 10, 9. They have to be put together, which means faith isn't as simple as uttering the words, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. It is a constraining and defining and ordering and identifying belief. Therefore, if 
faith is brought into the heart by the work of God and the truth of God's warning such that we believe it, what's Jesus' message in Mark 1 when he begins to preach about the kingdom of God? He says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. If Romans 10.9 was to be understood as simplistically as uttering, I believe in Jesus, then why can Jesus utterly pair repentance and belief together? The faith that is real faith cohabits in marriage with repentance, which is the full changing of the mind and the turning around of the life in a completely new identity, which is why everywhere in the Bible, when it talks about Christian conversion, it talks about a complete new identity. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, right? Right? When someone comes to faith, it says, Behold, they're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. In John 3, when God is talking to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. Coming out into a completely different life. First Peter, to experience the new birth. Why these metaphors? Because you have to understand that what faith is referring to is an identity change. A complete identity change. You're, you become a different person. And when that happens, right, which is what God is doing by His Spirit, doing by His warning, working and drawing us towards repentance and leading us into faith and working in His by Spirit, the goal is, is that what He wants to save is a new creation, a new human, a new embracer of the image of God, one who wishes now with a new heart to live in real righteousness. Your righteousness doesn't save you. The transference of identity saves you. That's what it means to believe, to have faith. Faith makes you a different person. And since you've become that new person, you experience that awakening, and you walk out of the old life, God is willing, through the imposition of His Son's death as a substitute for you, to wipe away. That is not to remember, it says, your past against you. He saves you because of your identity, not your history. Now notice that in this passage, the opposite is also true. If you've been a righteous person, which includes faith in the book of Ezekiel, right? And you walk away from that, and you re-identify as someone who repudiates righteousness, that is, loving God with all your heart, soul, and, and strength, and loving your neighbor as embodied in the commands and teachings of God's self-revelation, he says that person will die and their righteous acts will not be remembered. Right? Why? Because God saves by identity, not history. Good history or bad history. He saves the saved. Right? He brings to himself those who belong to him, and belonging to him is an identification through the converted heart, which Ezekiel talks about him, God taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. A transformation of identity. If that transformation of identity happens at the behest of a warning worked by the Spirit of God, then God can save and use that warning to deliver. Does that make sense? I, there's so much more I want to say about that, but I'm not going to. Okay. Two is, warnings are an absolute responsibility for a watchman. Warnings are an absolute responsibility for a watchman. Okay? Ezekiel 3.18 says this. Um, when I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sins, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. 
It's an absolute responsibility. Right. God is calling Ezekiel and to a lesser, more, more circumscribed way, all of his people, to this role of watchman. That is, to the role of watchman, not the role of savior. Right? Um, if I'm standing by a street and there's a lady screwing around in the, in the road and some truck comes off of its parking brake and it's going down to her, and I yell, Hey, lady, watch out! Whilst I run towards her, and she looks up and she goes, eh. And I tackle her out of the way, and the bus goes by, and she's alive, right? Is that the role of watchman or savior? Savior, right? If I say, hey, lady, there's a car coming, right? And she looks, and she, maybe she gets out of the way. Maybe she doesn't get out of the way. Or maybe she just hears me calling. She's like, whatever. I don't know who that idiot is. And she's like still feeling, right? That's the role of watchman, right? Our, our job is to blow the horn. We can't save anyone, right? Now, however, what God says is, is that our responsibility, not to save other people, but to be a watchman to them, willing to give them a warning when appropriate, is a absolute responsibility. Meaning this, if we don't do it, they die for their own sin. And yet, we are complicit and guilty as a negligent participant in their death. A negligent participant. In the Bible, the idea that your blood is on your own head is connected to legal negligence. That it was your job to do something, and you didn't do it. You knew it was your job, and it was specifically relevant to the well-being of another person. Now, here's a, here's a couple implications there. One implication is that you have obligations, with, certain obligations to other people, whether you like them or not. Do you see how that's a direct implication of the statement? Right? Whether you like it or not, you have obligations to other people. Not the same, and it's not the same to all people. Right? Secondly, the, the sort of like res, the connected opposite truth is also true. You aren't responsible for them holistically. Right? So you see the watchman has a responsibility to other people, but he's not responsible for them. Do you see that dynamic? It's a fundamentally biblical and Christian dynamic. You have dignities as a human person and enough dignity that you are responsible for your own destiny. Especially morally speaking. Now think about this for a second. If I said, if like before you were ever born, let's say I was playing the role of God and you got to pick some things about your birth. And I said, okay, listen. So your name is Alex. Alex, you're going to be born in the world and we can decide on what principle you're going to be saved. I'll give you two options. One is, when you die, you have accrued or accumulated at least 300,000 American dollars in total wealth. Or that you are um, a morally upright person with a heart of faith towards me. Which, which do you want, right? Now you might think, shoot, I, I'll, if I'm going to be a smart person, maybe I can do, and then I can like govern all the rest of my life. I've got to just make some money and that'll be fine. Here's the problem. One of those is under your control and one isn't, right? That's a big difference. It's a big difference. You see, no matter what happens to you when you come into the world, you can choose to be righteous. That is, to believe, have a faith towards God, and to do what you believe it is yours to do in any moment. Right? Nothing can take that away from you. 
You can get thrown into a gulag or a concentration camp. You can be beaten up. You can be fired for no reason. You can be—your spouse can just walk out on you. Your kids can hate your guts. Like any, like any number of things can happen. Everything can go wrong for you. Everything you can't control can go against you. But in every situation, there's still going to be a choice. There's still going to be what is for you to do in this situation and whether or not you are going to do it. Right? So literally everything can go wrong and you can completely succeed. That's not true for most other things. It's not true for marriage. It's not true for career success. It's not true for friendships. It's not true for health. It's not true for a lot of stuff. For most everything. It's really only true for like a couple of things, and one of them is whether you will choose to do what is full of faith and right as demonstrated by God's revelation in each situation that faces you. That's it. And you can control that, and that's your responsibility. But that does not mean for one second that other people don't have a responsibility to you or that you don't have a responsibility to other people. The way I say this in marriage counseling is that you are 100% responsible for your behavior in your marriage. And your spouse is 100% responsible to be your ally to make that easier. Does that make sense? And so if your marriage is coming apart, it's not like, we don't go like, it's 50-50 or it's 60-40. No, no, it's like you're both 100% failing, okay? Like, like, if, like if you're behaving badly and the other person is not functioning within the role of ally, they are 100% failing to function in the role of ally, and you are 100% fa- failure for behaving as you are responsible to behave. So we're not sharing blame. There's no shared blame. There is guilt and negligence. That's it. Do you understand? And so if I as a watchman do not do my job for you, right, and you just do whatever you want, right, you're going to face God by yourself. I'm not going to be there. But I am going to face God myself for my either negligence or faithfulness in how I fulfilled my responsibility to you. And those are different things. And I, I have not chosen all the responsibilities that I have as a human being. Right? I, was, I was born into a family where I have, I have a mother. My mother is still living. I have responsibility to her whether I like it or not. She's my mother. Implicit in that relationship are certain obligations. I can't get out of those obligations. I don't want to. Praise God, he's done enough work in my life that I've accepted my natural obligations, and I see them as an opportunity to do my duty, which is an inherent good that I've learned to take joy in. But like, I could rail against them and be upset about it and say, well, I shouldn't have obligations that I didn't consent to. Right? But that's just not how morality or humanity works. Can you imagine a world in which you only have the responsibilities and everybody else only had the responsibilities that they consented to, right? People, people would ask you, like, when you were, like, 13, would you sign this form that says you won't kill anybody? Do you, like, accept moral responsibility not to torture people or, like, eat animals while they're alive or, like, something, you know, like, that would be crazy. Virtually all of our moral responsibilities are implicit and not chosen. That's one of the things that makes marriage so interesting. It's like, you picked that person. That's on you, buddy, you know? I have to keep moving. Sorry. One of the reasons why this is such an important thing that God can say, listen, if you don't, if you don't fulfill your responsibility as a watchman, however that pertains to you, that negligence is a blood that is on your head that will be a reckoning. Right? 
one of the reasons that's important is that if we, if we don't believe in that, if we're just materialists about facing evil and dealing with problems, one of the things that happens, we see a problem, we see evil happening, and we decide whether or not we're going to do something. And what we naturally do is we do like kind of a cost-benefit analysis in our head. What is the possible benefit of me doing a warning and confronting this evil? And then what are the possible negatives of or costs of me warning. And then, like, if the benefits are significantly more than the costs in a highly likely way, then I'll do something. And if it's not, then I won't, right? I cannot tell you how terrible a world that will create. Right? What it means is, is that you will basically only intervene when you stand to gain personally. When selfishness says, you should do something, then you'll do something. But when sacrifice for the good of others says you should do something, you won't. Why? Because the costs will be higher than the benefits. The benefits will accrue to other people, and the costs will accrue to you. And you'll be like, nope. You'll only step in when you think reasonably you can gain. So you'll be a Karen. Right? Now, if you believe what this passage teaches about the nature of reality and God's sovereign glory over it, the way he constrains it as its lover and merciful watchman who gives it warnings through his own people, then there's more things added to the equation right? There is the benefit that might accrue to the warning. There is the cost of the warning, right? Then there is also the glory of God, right? He goes out to the plain, and he sees the glory of God again, and he's told what to do. There's something, something built into that of when you see God's glory, your motivations just kind of change. Like, it just—you just want to respond to the glory of God. But then also— you recognize that that glorious God has pronounced blood accountability over your responsibility to warn. Now figure that. That's kind of a big variable, the value there, isn't it? And if you start functioning in the, in the moral structures of your heart, in your constraining belief, what God calls faith, if you believe that like when you see something and it is your responsibility because you have stewardship over that thing, it is actually your job. You're the one who should step in here. And you're saying, well, should I step in? What are the benefits and what are the costs? And one of the costs is blood guilt eternally for denying in full moral negligence what you are responsible for in your own stewardship as a human being. Like, the costs start to seem a little more piddly than they did when all you were wondering is, will I get a promotion or will I get attacked? You see, we human beings, we need this motivation. We need God to tell us that when it's our job to give warning to another person, or in some particular context, when it really is our job to do it, that we need to see it as something that carries the threat of blood guilt negligence if we choose not to do it. And for a lot of us, frankly, at a lot of times, it's the only motivation strong enough. Either because we fear for ourselves, or because we just recognize in God's glory that it's that important to him. And that important a part of our own life for us to really discover what our life is really about. Like if I—if if you're sitting here, you're like, you know, I, I wonder what my life is about. Or you think you know what your life about, is about. And I say, listen, if you as a watchman in the areas of your stewardship and responsibility do not give warning when you must, the blood of the people who die because of it is on your head. What does that tell you about your life? It tells you that that is a meaningful part of the purpose of your existence. It doesn't have to be profoundly negative. You're like, oh my gosh, that's an important, meaningful thing in my life. Like, clearly because there's an enormous penalty if I don't do it. Right? So there's, there's seeing it as an absolute responsibility is critical to understanding the dynamic, right? 
which means if you see that, you'll intervene when um, to dissuade someone from destruction, no matter what the cost. Now, one of the things I I probably should say something about before we move on is like, well, what's the scope of this? Because you could say, you're like, okay, Nick, so does that mean like anytime I see anybody going in a trajectory or direction that could be bad for them, that could ultimately lead to their spiritual destruction or moral destruction, I, is it my job to warn every single person every time? Uh, And the the answer is no. This is a whole nother series of sermons to go through all the thinking on this. But if you, um, if you look through scripture, um, two of the categories that are in this passage are simply, one, it's needed for their good to save their life, that they be dissuaded from the thing then. And two, that it is your responsibility to do it. The scriptural baseline, if you look at all the different places where this is discussed, the scriptural baseline for each of us as watchmen are three things. One is keeping watch over yourself. Keeping watch over yourself. That's the biggest one in the New Testament, especially if you're in any kind of leadership at all. Because corruption starts here, right? So the first, keep watch over yourself. The second is keeping watch over your stewardship, which could be people, or it could be any number or, or mixture of things, right? But if you're going to give someone a warning, it's going to be a person, right? So you're keeping watch over those you steward, right? So the question is, is this person that I want to tell off on Facebook someone I'm a steward of? Now that doesn't mean you can't say anything. It just means blood guilt negligence isn't at stake. Does that make sense? And then thirdly, is keeping watch over your influences, right? A number of places in the New Testament says, watch out for these people who will teach you these things, which will destroy your faith and the faith of others. So, you, so, so right, so you're, see, it's just very simple. You're keeping track of yourself, you're keeping track of those influencing you, and you're keeping track of those you influence. Do you understand? Are, are, is what you're bringing in, are you watchful over that so that it's impacting you would be good? Are you looking within and being watchful over that to make sure the work of God is happening? And are you being watchful over those for whom you have care so that that which is good and the work of God in them can grow? Sorry, I can't say more. Sometimes I have more than that right now. And last, a warning is a delivery, not a defense. A warning is a delivery, not a defense. Remember Jesus said this? He said, don't throw your pearls before swine, right? Or they will ultimately turn around and attack you, right? There's a certain principle built into a number of passages of Scripture and into proper human psychology, I think, which is, like, sometimes it's better just not to say anything to people, right? Um, Proverbs says that if you give good advice to a fool or an evil person, they're going to hate you for it. Does that make sense? And, and so, so one of the questions is, does this passage tell us that we have to warn those who are in our stewardship who clearly don't want to hear it and just, like, just want to argue with us, right? And the answer to that question, it's in this verse. It's really easy to read over. Verses 26 and 27. He says, I, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that for you, so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, this is what the Lord says. Now, that's easily lost on us. The word that is translated there, um, rebuke, sounds like a warning, right? Like if you rebuke somebody, you tell them they're doing something wrong, right? And if you warn somebody, you're, you're rebuking them, right? You're telling them they're doing something wrong. Like, isn't that the same thing? So, so you wouldn't differentiate in that passage. The word that is translated there, rebuke, can mean like arbitrator, reprover, 
Um, it can mean somebody who like settles a dispute, or it can mean somebody that like reasons through something with you so that you understand. Like a good rebuke is, hey, John, you don't want to do it that way, okay? It, it's going to hurt this person this way. It's going to hurt you that way. It's not God's will. And I'm going I'm, I'm to explain it to him. Do you understand? I'm going to tell him he's doing something wrong, but I'm going to tell him why it's wrong, and I'm going to help him understand why it's wrong. Now, here's the thing. That works really well if somebody wants to listen. Do you understand? It said, the Bible says, rebuke, same word, a wise person, and they will love you. Proverbs 25, 12 says this, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a, what? Listening ear. Right? So when a wise person tells you that you're doing something wrong and why, and takes you through why it's that way, and what implications it has, and how's it's tie- how it's tied back to God, how it forms you morally one way or another over time, and, and, and why you should turn around and go the other way in the thing, and you're a listening ear. Like, you're like, oh, like, I want to acquire this wisdom. I want its benefit for my life, right? The human face in the four angels, the cherubims. The human face, the face of the wisdom of God, right? And you, you, you bring it in. You want that, right? It's like an earring of gold, right? But what if you're talking to a stiff-necked, obstinate people who won't listen to Ezekiel because they won't listen to God, and they haven't for half of a millennia? Right? You see, there's a certain kind of communication for those who want to hear what you're saying, and there's a certain kind of communication for those who do not want to hear what you're saying. And what God is saying to Ezekiel is saying, listen, you're not going to have a ministry of reasoning. These people don't want to hear it. They're not going to listen. They don't want to listen. And you're just not going to have a ministry of them where you go out among them and you like talk to them and you share what you think and you tell them about me and you like, you're like a rabbi. You're not going to be a priest. You were born a priest, Ezekiel. I get that you wanted to be a priest. You're 30 years old now. You thought that you would be a priest. And part of being a priest is teaching the people, taking them through, helping them understand the ways of God. That's not what you're going to do. They don't want to hear it. So here's what you're going to do. Their obstinacy is going to be like you being bound up with ropes. And so you're going to go to your house, and it's like you're going to be tied up by their behavior of absolute rejection of you. And you know what? I am going to enforce that by making you mute. I'm not even going to let you talk. And when I speak to you and tell, them, tell you what to say to them as a warning, you just say it, and that's it. You just say, the Lord says this. And if they argue with you, you just say, The Lord says this. See, one of, the, one of the things that's very difficult is, even in our parenting models, we tend to be yada yada parenters, right? Like, like, let me explain this to you. Like, even when your kids are not listening, listen. When your kids are listening with a listening ear, pour forth wisdom and let it be like fine gold, right? But when they are not, that's why the phrase is, I'm your parent, do what I told you was invented. Because I said so. Or I'm not arguing with you about it. Right? Those, those were invented because parents in other generations, like our grandparents knew, that when a kid is arguing with you, it is idiotic to argue with them. They just become wiser in their own eyes, more constrained in their own foolishness. We say this is like, listen, I've delivered a message. You have to decide how you're going to respond to it. I blew the horn. You do what you want. Right? When they're little, you force them to do what's right. That's your job as a parent. And at some point, even sometimes when they're living in your house, you go, listen, 
I'm going to tell you the truth, and then you're going to have to choose what you're going to do. And here's the difference between when you were little and now. I can't force you to do anything, and I also can't save you from your own choices. And it terrifies me, and it hurts me, but I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. I told you I said, you're going to have to decide what to do with it. You see, Ezekiel's job is to deliver the message, right? Not to argue with people. That's his job. In these first couple chapters, Ezekiel is referred to in a phrase that is utterly common in a certain sense and completely unique to the book of Ezekiel. Almost completely. The phrase son of man in the Bible clearly literally just means human being. The son of humanity, a daughter of Adam and Eve, to put it in Lewis's terms. But it's the only title God gives Ezekiel, and he gives it to him dozens and dozens of times. Every time God refers to him and gets his attention, he says, son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man. A number of commentators have said that the reason why John's gospel of the four gospels is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, is not because he didn't want to use the material in those gospels, but because he saw the ministry of Jesus as patterned after Ezekiel. The people are in exile. They don't have their own country. The church of God would forever be in exile among the cultures of the world, right? You can go on and on and on with this, right? But he saw the ministry of Jesus as a ministry like the ministry of Ezekiel. Jesus went out into the wilderness to accept his call. There's lots of parallels, okay? And so if you look at the ministry of Jesus when he comes to preach that the kingdom of God is coming, and he, he preaches a, a, a message of, of salvation by faith. He does. But constrained within an ethical teaching about the kingdom of God and the righteousness that God wants us to pursue. And so when he comes in all these situations, there is all, he's always giving this invitational, accusational warning. Just read the teachings of Jesus. In most cases, his teaching is like, oh, Jesus is so nice. Have you read the teachings of Jesus? Like every time Jesus talks, he is making—it is loving, it's, it's often kind, but it is an invitational accusation. He is giving a warning. Sometimes it's very explicit. Sometimes it's horrifyingly explicit. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. But he's always inviting people to, re- to change, to repent, and to believe, to accept his warning. And you're like, but he told all those nice stories. Yeah, he did tell a lot of nice stories because he was trying to disarm our pride and our flint-headed arrogance so that we would actually listen to the moral truth of the story without getting defensive immediately so that maybe we could have some introspection and self-realization so as to come into the light. But Jesus said in John 3, he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that through me the world could have life. But, what's right say right that? Men and women love darkness, and they fear coming into the light. Right? You and I have to recognize that the belief in our own hearts that God is a Karen wants to make us a Karen— that the self-righteousness of religious people that we have seen is bound up with the self-righteousness of God, that that's wrong. The reason why Ezekiel could be handed a scroll from the hand of glory that had words of lament, suffering, and woe written on both sides, and that he was told to eat it, and when he ate it, it tasted, it says, as sweet as honey in my mouth. Why did it say that? Because a warning has the chance to save everything. A warning has the chance to bring life, to reset a human being, to restart 
redemption, to create a new creation out of a dead one, to change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to make the dry bones live, like it says in Ezekiel 36. And that can happen for you right now. It can happen for you more if you're a Christian. There might be a way where the wise voice of God in some way, if your ear is listening, can be like fine gold directing you in some warning to some better path in fuller righteousness and in safer attention to his purposes. Or if you're not a believer and you're willing to have a listening ear, his warning to you can be saving, can lead you to turn toward him because God's plan and all of his warnings is that you might be dissuaded in order that it would save your life. And life there means everything. Your physical life, the narrative of your life, your heart and what you feel and how you experience it, your eternal salvation, your development of character, your release from harms. Right? There is, there's this chance that your life could be saved by the warning of God if you believe. Right? And you see, God— God does all kinds of things to draw you to himself, but the way he reveals his actions to us is to say this, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and either you're going to believe or you're not. That's up to you. Now you're like, what about predestination? What about God working things for our good? What about all the things God does? He does all those things in his secret will. There are things God is doing to help obstinate people be redeemed. Many things. You don't know exactly what they are, and you don't know exactly how they function. So put them out of your mind for the moment. God's revealed will, what he says about himself, he says, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to warn you, and now you decide what you're going to do. You can listen, or you can fail to listen. And I realize, human beings, that you are an obstinate and flint-hearted people. But you see, God will never turn from the absolute responsibility of giving warning. Never. He will always do what is good and what is beautiful, and calling, even if there is the most infinitesimal possibility of the warning changing everything, he will give it. But humanly speaking, the way we can see and experience reality, it comes down to a question of, will you listen? Will you listen? Or will you have to have the heat turned up and up and up and up, and the pain increased more and more and more, and the mercies of warning become even more severe before the stone heart can be melted enough to be turned to flesh and for us to be saved, for you to be saved. God, I want to say more about this. I don't know if people want to hear anymore. Uh, I feel like I've said what the passage says. I pray that by your Spirit, in whatever experience each person brings to this, however they're naturally reasoning through it, and whatever their reaction is, that you would work and you would bring home the truth of it, whether it is our own callings to be watchmen, so as to give right warning to others and to not be negligent in the responsibilities of our lives towards others' well-being, or whether it's that we have to listen and listen to you and to the words of Christ, the perfect greater watchman, the one who was bound up in cords and where his tongue clung to the roof of his mouth as he was crucified for us. Help us to believe in Jesus' name.